This is Lost and Rewound. I am your host, Jimmy Hoffman. And I am your other host, Alon Danziger. Time to get embarrassed with us. you are not completely aware of what you just dialed into don't worry we got you covered man and woman and whomever out there happy summer to you and we have plenty of exciting things on this edition of lost and rewound yes we do something quite interesting in fact well you, i'm really happy that you finally after all this time of uh, talking big about your escapades in audio you are actually going to share something with us this is monumental, Jimmy. This is monumental. It's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, really, I'm very excited about it. We do want to get to that. I think we should save the best for last. All right, sure. Because I believe that yours is the best thing we're going to have in a while. <laughs> well, I, you know, guys, yeah, we, we've got a clip for you unearthed. This has to be over 20 years old. Mm. Not, not, not just a clip. It is an entire story. Yeah. It's a, it's a journey. It's a, I, it's a doom journey. For, for the record, I don't even know if we truly will be able to get through all of it. I have not heard it really at all. I've heard like maybe the first 10 seconds. Jimmy has not heard it since 20 years ago. So yeah. you... The listener and us, the providers, will actually not have any prior knowledge of what is going to be heard, and that is exciting. Yeah, this is this is going to be a time capsule, circa like uh, let's say, possibly 1992 in Brooklyn. Let's consider this Brooklyn journey the headliner, and in the meantime, let's begin on the Woodstock journey. have that friend when you're growing up who always is a big know-it-all. I grew up with so many know-it-alls as a kid that I really felt that I could only be as intelligent as the people I was surrounded by. If, and it's one of those things, if you didn't grow up with one of those know-it-alls, you were the know-it-all. I was around kids who were more or less stronger than I am, so that because I was friends with them, and I know you, I think, talked about this too, you start a new school and you befriend all of the older kids. Yeah, this Ooh. was that was high school. That was high yeah. school. And, so, and I don't know what happened. People were they were way larger back then. <laughs> it was it was <laughs> they, my... they become diminutive in size yeah. as the generations proceed. Think about when you were a kid. Even just the idea when you would see your parents and how large they seemed. Oh yeah, definitely. I was not really aware exactly of how tall my dad really was. But as I grew older, I realized you know. 
he's pretty tall, but he's no beanstalk. My dad's only about 6'0". He's easily the tallest person in our family. And um, generally speaking, I think that entire family are relatively short, actually. I come from a very short family. Um, You would. Yeah. (laughs) I just didn't, for some reason, really grasp how to defend myself when I was a kid. So I was small in nature and also very puny. Before we get to the main clip, there is actually one very fascinating documentation of just how small I truly was. Ooh, your weight is a little heavy, I see. If we heard... I know. Well, I wonder if we heard it. <laughs> he actually broke something, but who cares about that? He always breaks stuff with his heavy weight, that's all right. Shut up, Alon. I'm not heavy. You're very fat. So how much do you weigh? 140? No, 70. Oh. <laughs> and so with that knowledge of just how small I truly was, let's listen to the real main clip of Brooks and I, in which I proceed to tell him, please don't fight me. Well, okay, no kicking in the balls, no kicking in the, in the face, no kicking in the back, no kicking in the legs, no kicking in the feet, no Hello! kicking in the shins. Hi, sir. Back, no kicking in the hands, the arms, the elbows, not the armpits, not the head. No kicking on the stomach, no kicking in the ribs, no kicking in the chin, no kicking in the neck, no kicking in the butt. Okay. I shall kick you. Turn you can't, you can't kick me in the back of the legs either, or the back of the head, or the back of the neck, or the back of the butt. I'll punch you anywhere! I was always pretty much the smallest of my friends. I was always the shortest, the thinnest, the scrawniest, so Brooks was certainly tall for his age, and quite husky, and then Kyle was very muscular and extremely tall for his age, two years younger than me. I was surrounded by complete strong men for kids. That, the, that's what happens. I had the same thing. My uh, my best friend when I was growing up was a big, strong kid, and mm. he actually was heavy set in his middle years, so like before he was a teenager, really. Mm-hmm. And there was a point where he was so much stronger than me. We, you know, your kids, you would wrestle and stuff like that. Oh yeah. And there was no way I could, I could, like, fight him or, or best him. And we would still, I would still always go at him. When was the moment that you guys definitely started to drift in strength? There's always that time where you, or maybe it's before or after you hit puberty or something, but you're just, you're not, your growth spurt has not hit yet and everybody else is starting to hit. Yeah, it was probably right around like eight or nine years old. Yeah. He just started to get a little bit bigger. So he got heavy. He liked being heavy, but then when he got older, he said, oh, girls won't like me being heavy. So, like, I need to lose all this weight because I want to get women. Yeah. And we were, we were like, tw- 13 at the time or something. And he went on this insane workout regimen. And I trained him in the park. He would run, like, seven miles, and I would, like, ride my bike next to him. And he would be yelling at him and telling, giving him tasks and stuff like that. But what, what was so funny is that he would work out a lot. And then in his weakened state after he would work out, that was the time I would attack him. <laughs> <laughs> Got him when he was down. Then the old joke was the game was called Try and Stop Me. <laughs> and I would just attack him. We would be doing, you know, when guys are doing strength thing, you know, you're you're grappling with somebody. And when they're stronger than you, they just manhandle you, you know? Mm. So it would be this thing where he'd be used to manhandling me. And then all of a sudden we're in this grapple and I would start to outstrength him. And it was strange because I'm smaller. It was more like a movie where I got the special powers. And every time it would happen, I would just, like, be, like, grabbing his arms and twisting. And he'd be like, nah. 
<laughs> it was pretty classic. We've had the chance to talk on, again, the former iterations of Lost in Rowan's podcast days, talking about the wrestling infatuation. The WWE was, or then the WWF, was very closely watched for the era of, I guess, before the Attitude Era, as it's to be known now. That was the late 90s, so we were watching it in the mid-90s, and we got to a point where we're actually, like, we would stage in my bedroom on a mattress, or like two mattresses we'd lay out and just start trying out moves. And it was probably like when I was like 10, 11, we had a fake tag team. He was Thunder and I was Lightning. The small, quick, very... Yeah, like, I'll go you, under you, kind of David and Goliath style. That's you, how I always envisioned myself. You become the human missile in that situation. 70 pounds. He's throwing you. That's how that's going to go. I don't think there was, I think there may have been one other student in my class that was as thin, if not thinner than me, that I had interest in wrestling. Just showed how completely delusional I was <laughs> that I was ever going to get to these levels of strength. Were you really fast? I liked to think so. I was good at short distance running, but I did not have the endurance or the stamina. That's why I got into basketball, because I really liked the pace, the energy of which I could definitely get to the other side of the court in very quick time. So I had good hustle. That's, a good, that's exactly what I, I almost was immediately going to assume. I was like, you probably had quickness. Even now, I feel like you have quickness. And speed and quickness are two different, completely different skills. Yeah, I, t- I was terrible at track. If I was required to do a few laps around the track, the local junior slash senior high school on Tiora, I think like I did really well on the sprint on the first like, five minutes. And then after five minutes, I just started dogging it. Still to this day, you could hear it in my voice that when I'm talking on the radio in my enthusiasm, I don't know how to breathe. <laughs> I can't breathe, literally and figuratively. No, I can. It's just the fact that I have no ability to test the breath control before I actually go and put it to the test. You gotta, you gotta learn your radio breath, man. I know, dude. Just more episodes, and you'll get that radio breath. <laughs> I'll get that radio breath loud and clear. It's exactly loud and clear. I'm gonna work on my Jimmy voice. It's, I've even. It's funny because I've actually changed my breathing on this program specifically from the way I used to breathe. Oh yeah. It's radio breath. I'm trying to not take big breaths on air. Yeah. So if I have to take a breath or let out air, I'll try to do it off mic. It kind of makes me feel like I have a disease. Because <laughs> I keep looking away and like, ah, ah, you know, I'm trying to be professional here. Going back to the physical exertion, did you get into fights a lot? I didn't get into fights all the time, but kids used to start fights with me a lot. So you were susceptible because of your frame to getting picked on. Exactly. So the funny thing was most of my original fights were other small kids, other scrawny kids that would challenge me to a fight to prove that they were not the scrawniest. What? Yeah, that, that, I, had that was. That, I had that happen repeatedly. Oh, okay. I was like, Go I was on. like the smallest kid in school until maybe I was twelve, mm-hmm. and I got. I went through a growth spurt. I actually grew like five inches over a summer. Like I was a lot bigger. I had like stretch marks in my back. Like I grew really quickly. Things started to change after that. But before that, other little kids would come at me, and they would even tell me they were like, "Man, you know, you're little. I'm little. One of us is going to be the shrimp." I made sure I wasn't the shrimp. Every time I ever got challenged to a fight, and I say this now not in the hopes that someone won't be waiting for me outside of the radio station, but to this day, 
I've got my perfect record. I've never lost a fight to this day. And I'm not, and I'm not a, uh, what's the name of that guy? Who, who's this, this boxer uh, who, who has this perfect record? He's fought like 50-something times. Wrong person to ask, but I'm going to just say it's Pacquiao or whatever. Whoever beat him recently. Oh. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So it's Pacquiao was the guy, and he got right. beat. And he got beat by Mayweather, I believe. And um, he's the classic idea of, like, punching and running away a lot. You know, if he feels like he can't beat a guy, he'll win on points. Every fight, I had the same strategy. And it was hit him before he hits me really fast and really hard. And chances are he won't hit back. And almost every time, it's exactly what happened. It would be like a one punch. And it wasn't like they got knocked out. It's like they weren't expecting to actually have a fist fight. They would challenge you to fist fight, and you would punch them. Mm-hmm. And they would be really, like, alarmed and taken aback. And I would look at them like, you just started this fight. I was never coerced into fighting. Well, I'll just say that. And for what it may be worth, uh, I don't really know how to compare myself to somebody like you who was able to, right off the bat, make the first hit happen. And then take it from there. I over-scrutinized and was afraid that I would get in trouble. And I didn't want to get in trouble. So I did my best to avoid conflict as much as possible. And this is ironic because the first fight I ever got into, I started. But maybe that's the point. Is is that after that time, I took that as a warning sign. That I should really try and be as mindful as possible about how I picked my fights. No pun intended. Uh, you know, my conflicts that I got into, I really tried to keep really relegated to arguments, and that was it. So even at a young age, I tried very hard to fulfill my destiny as a Woodstock kid by being a pacifist. My father told me to fight. A lot of fathers told their kids to fight. He told me to fight. He always said to me, because I remember that there was maybe some day I came back from school, and there was a kid that was picking on me. And I just told him, and it wasn't like the kid had had hit, beat me up, but the kid was, you know, just doing the normal kid picking on you sort of stuff, making fun of stuff that may not even be a big deal, but because they make fun of it, it becomes a big deal. And uh, he said to me, don't be a punching bag, but don't be a bully. And he said, he said the same way. He goes, for the most part, if somebody is bothering you, if you punch them square in the nose one time, they're going to stop bothering you, and that's going to be the end of it. And I remember that I was there was like a fight. It was the last fight that I ever got in, really, in school. I got in a fight like when I was like 14, mm-hmm. and uh, this kid had been berating me like all year long. I guess I was sort of advanced for the school. I wasn't in advanced classes at that point. I did like a lot of advanced placement and different like accelerated classes when I was in school, but it wasn't in it at that point, so I used to just do all the work and get all these straight A's, but it was really easy for me to the point where I was trying to help other kids in the class cheat and stuff because I I wanted more stuff to do Mm -hmm. and I thought it was cool to like subvert the system and I was like well if my grades are high and I know the answers but other kids are struggling like let me help them and get them some answers so that everyone can get through this and uh, this one and all the kids used to really like me for that I would do a test really quickly come up with all the answers and find ways to cheat to all these kids in the class so they could get the answers and stuff too. Mm-hmm. This one kid just didn't like that, I suppose. And he used to make jokes uh, in, like, in the vein of me being geeky. And, mm-hmm. it, and it was really based on the fact that I had just gotten glasses and they would be sliding down my nose all the time and he would notice me putting them back up. It was funny. Honestly, when he first did it, I laughed because I thought it was like a funny joke. But then you were like, oh, wait, hmm. 
he's actually he has some animosity. Yeah, exactly. There Supposed were, animosity. You're exactly right. Like I could tell that there was ill will behind it, and he would be like, like, and he would just say big words. That's all he would do because I would say these vocabulary words, and he would be like, concordantly, and he'd be like, vis a vis. That just sounds really annoying. If anything, it was. Because he's trying to get a rise out of you. Yeah, and it didn't work. And basically what ended up happening is it was like the one of the last days of school. And I walked into the classroom. And actually, this is the worst. When I went to the school for a freshman year, it was freshman year of high school. What school was this again? This was telecommunication, arts, and technology. In Bay Ridge. In Bay Ridge. Okay. Yeah. For For some reason, for the first year I went to school there, only freshmen had to stay an extra period at the end of the day. So we had to stay like 45 minutes longer than everyone else. I think they did it so that we wouldn't get beat up or something because there was a, there definitely was bullying in my school. But the year after I was a freshman, they eliminated it, <laughs> and the next year didn't have it, and I was like so pissed off that I had to go through it. <laughs> it's like why would I want to be in school like extra time, you know? Even if you have a good classes, because you know only half your classes were decent, or maybe you only had a couple that you actually enjoyed. A lot of the classes were basically just you phoned in, no different than the teachers phoning it in, which is exactly. yeah, so sad. The teacher would be, the teacher would give no respect and no effort, and you wouldn't either. You know that was just the nature of it. They, sure. were, they were going to work; they were getting a paycheck, and you could tell. So I'd walked into this classroom. It was the, the last period, so a lot of the uh, faculty would go home because they only had the faculty that needed to run. Mm-hmm. The freshmen and like you know the assistant principals would leave. So I walked in, and this kid threw a textbook, and it hit me in the face. What? Yeah, like right on the nose. And it sent shooting pain through my face. And really without thinking, I, st- I, I, I went at him. I went directly at this kid. Yo, you, you should have. I'm glad like, you did. I tore into the room. And he was a lot smaller than me. It was one of those things where he'd been making fun of me, but I'd, I'd, never, I'd never let it get to me because he was little. And this is a point where I was already taller at this point. Like it was, I was to almost my full height, which I'm 5'10 now. Or five nine and a half. You spurted early. Yeah, I was. I, I basically, I'm telling you, man. By the time I went to high school, I was that height. I I went straight towards him. I threw my backpack and I started flipping all these desks, and like he was just running away and like like trying to get get away from me. And I grabbed him, actually by the throat, and I pressed him into this chalkboard, wheeling. And I was basically pulled back, and he had this look of like unbelievable terror on his face, and I felt a wrist clasp around my hand before I hit him. And it was the teacher. And she goes, James. And I snapped right out of it. Yeah. I let go of the kid. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, miss. Like, I didn't, I didn't mean anything. And uh, the kid is there, and he's, like, shaking. And then she's like, you're going to have to go in tomorrow morning because the principals aren't here right now. And then you're going to get suspended. But it was the last day of school. Or rather, it was a Friday. You have to go in Monday morning. I forgot. I honestly forgot to go in. And that other kid just didn't go in because he was, like, a troublemaker. Mm-hmm. Actually, I ended up getting expelled from the school the next year anyway. <laughs> I didn't get suspended for it. didn't get in trouble for it. I didn't actually hit the kid, so. Yeah. But but every time I used to see that kid, for the, he got sus- expelled the next year. But before he got expelled, I would see him in the hallway, and he would see me, and he would run away, like, as fast as possible. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. You, I mean, you they, struck fear. He, I mean, he knew. He got saved. And in my life, I've never injured a person in a fight. Um, you know, it's always been a, a black eye at the most. Yeah, I would feel weird if I actually injured somebody in a fight. I'm, I, I'm thinking about that retrospectively, too. I wouldn't feel comfortable about it now. I wouldn't feel comfortable then. It no was way. just something that was always instilled with me that it just wasn't worth it. I don't I mean, know. Yeah, and, well, and, and that made me an easy punching bag, but I just had to sort of turn the other cheek and avoid whatever conflict I could just so I wouldn't get to that point. 
where I had to approach it with flippancy, I suppose. Well, there was this whole thing growing up, especially in Brooklyn, that there was a certain level of violence that existed around you. And sure. You, you would see it. You would see it on the streets all the time. And, and you had to protect yourself. And you, So for me, it was a little bit more normalized. You know, I'd seen people act way worse than I ever did. Yeah. So for me, it was just a defense thing. And I thought to myself, I just want to be alive tomorrow. There was this whole thing when you would go into school that you would say hello to all your friends like everyone that you knew and you would be like, oh, you'd be giving them these huge hellos. And the old, the old like adage I would say is like, yeah, we, we made it through the night. <laughs> like, you know, everyone's back. Everyone's still here. Yeah. You know, and it was just a little thing. And people go, no, 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 it's not like that. And I go, well, it, it's, not, it's not always like that. But sometimes some days are really easy, but some days really, you know, really crazy stuff would happen. Y- you have to go that way through school, no matter what the circumstances are and how large the school is. I think... You get to be a certain age, and when kids start getting behind the wheel, and there's going to be irresponsibility, there's going to be drug use. There's no matter what the size, that kind of fear that your friends may get involved with the wrong crowd is very much alive, and it continues to still go to this day even more so. When I was in fourth grade, I got into my first fight. I feel like I've mentioned this sometime in the past, probably to Doug and Melissa and you, but there was a kid in my fourth grade class named Matt Cricker who, along with a few other people who weren't antagonists at all, they just wanted to get a rise out of me, and something or another gave way to the the it's-not-the-end-of-the-world phrase, which continued bugging me and haunting me. And then at one point, he said it to me on the playground to such a degree that I snapped and Christmas story style dove on him and just started slapping his face, punching his face. I don't think I even heard him, but I think it was more just a sort of surprise that I would even attack somebody out of pure frustration and anger. And I, that's, that was the moment that I realized that I really shouldn't fight again or, you know, at least in, initiate a fight, be the instigator that you will. That instigation continued to not happen at all. I was really very good at not initiating fights, and then somehow I kind of was asking for it in college. In my junior year of school, I was living in a four-bedroom, and one of my roommates was such an asshole, and him and another roommate had essentially conspired to make my life a living hell by putting trash just all over my bedroom. Because I hadn't taken the trash out, which I was supposed to do. Oops. But their response to that was to, even though my room was locked, they evidently had made a copy of the key to my bedroom, had gone in uh, when I was coming home from a radio shift, actually, and just dumped all the garbage in my bedroom. That's really awful, man. And so my response to this was, okay, two could play that game. I'm going to whoop some ass. No. I I vacuumed (laughs) at like 2 a.m. I vacuumed. And the guy who was living uh, right next to me, he proceeded to knock on my door so loudly that he actually kicked the door open. And then he started to fight me because he was that pissed that I had the nerve to start vacuuming at that time of morning, which in most respects is an absolutely valid point. However, you had every ability to not fall through with the plan to throw trash in my room. So 
maybe you should have thought these things through before doing that. That seems like a pretty crazy, uh, you know, situation. Yeah, yeah. So you guys brawled in your room. We brawled. In the trash. Whatever. Exactly. It was very easy for him to overpower me. Although I will say that he wasn't necessarily strong. Because it's not like you're winning any awards for beating me in a fight. <laughs> it's really, really unfortunate that I would admit that. But I thought I could take him and at least throw a little bit of effort into it. No, you, had to, you fought back. I held my own. Like, he didn't hurt me at all. But I was just really just more pissed off at the whole thing. One of these days, Angel Yao and Nissa Greenberg's VHS Presents that goes down in Williamsburg, of which I help out, I have a video that I'm going to have to share at some point with my moppy fucking hair doing like a death threat to them on a camcorder in my car as, <laughs> if, as if they were going to find the video because they had access to my bedroom <laughs> and they were going to see this video and then you're know, going to see my threatening message. Was it, a, was it like <laughs> Taliban style? No, <laughs> Were no. you in a cave? Oh, I'm was... going to destroy your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's really not cool, Jim. I know, I Come know, on. I know, I know. I'm just like... That... I'm being dead serious. No. no, oh my God. I know what it was like. It was like, was it like... Like a wrestling, like calling them out. I'm gonna come and I'm gonna give you the backbreaker, and you're gonna have to answer to Bonesaw. The the answers will have to lie with the submission to VHS Presents when I do that. By the way, that happens every month, and we're gonna have to definitely have Angel Yao on the show sometime. She's got some tapes. This whole story of which I'm presenting to the listener and to Jimmy is clearly much better with visuals because it's not really a time that I really talk about very much because <laughs> there wasn't really a lot of audio. Although I did. Oh, my God. Although this is such an embarrassing admission, but let's do it. I totally utilized undercover Elon when I would take the recorder during the Danziger Zone days and just, like, pretend that I wasn't recording. And I actually had it recording while I was gone one time from the house and just left it recording in the apartment just to see like if anybody was going to come into my room basically spying on them as they dude. had every right to be spied on undercover elon dude undercover elon as opposed to undercover elon undercover <laughs> elon <laughs> let's let's take a quick break from all this fight business and when we come back we've got an exclusive 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 lost the robot Boom, 
SoundCloud. A pair of headphones. Uh, just generally a pair of headphones. But chances are you're looking at the image that is on the page. And you will notice, like what we did with the Tyler episode with his face, the Claire episode with her and Alan in the E.T. garb, you will see there is a image of a tape of which is scrawled with very illegible handwriting. And I have it in front of me right now because I just, I have to read it. Josh and Jeff on a doom, G-R-N-E-Y. Journey. Especially Germany. Doom journey. And And it's by James Hoffman. The writing is clearly that of someone from a very young age. Jimmy, how old were you when you made this tape? I don't know that there's a way to determine precisely, but my very best guess is six years old. How did you get the tape? So we had those, okay, then that very classic tape or cassette recorder that everyone had as a kid that had the yellow and red and uh, blue, all the primary colors, and it was the base of it thing was white. I'd seen it a million times. I'd seen it in movies and car- in all these different places. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we used it. I used it primarily to um, to listen to, to music on it, and I would use my my dad had old uh, you know um, Moody Blues and Grateful Dead tapes, and Pink sure. Floyd. I would listen to on it, yeah. And it had a little cheesy little microphone. And I remember one day, you know, as a kid, think and I said to my friend, I remember. Um, so the friend that I recorded with is uh, Zachary Poots, who we will we'll get him on the show soon. He Definitely, right with a name like that, he's got to be on Lost Reward. Exactly, and he's the guy I was talking about earlier, uh, my strong friend that I you know used to overpower. But he's actually I've known the guy at this point for my entire life, pretty much. He was ageless, and I was one when we met. They used to put us in the crib together, <laughs> back on Tenth Street. We've got like the intuition sort of deal, the psychic connection. You just know someone that well. But I remember even as a kid, I remember we had this little tape recorder and we had a lot of ambitions to do fun projects as kids and stuff like that. So we, I said to him one day, we should do like a story, like record something that's like that's worthwhile to listen to. And we came up with this idea to do sort of like a Hardy Boys-esque story about this, this doomed journey. And that's all I really remember about it other than the fact that we we didn't want to use our own names <laughs> for like whatever reason. Just just in case. You know, I like I always like my name. I remember as a kid. I think he likes his name now, Zach. But I remember as a, as a kid, he he really didn't like his name. I remember him telling me that he goes, "Oh, I hate Zachary," and then he had to spell his name Z A C K, and he had a big thing of like wanting to switch to an H because the Black Ranger and Power Rangers had an H, and <laughs> he spelled Zach. <laughs> Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Having a, being a, a lawn with two ends was, was not going to cut the mustard for me. I had to have it with one end and evidently mispronounce it the entire time I was here. <laughs> exactly. So I get it. So one of my friend's older brothers was named Jeff, and I was really like that name. I actually named a turtle I had Jeffrey the same way. So I picked his name Jeff, and my friend picked the name Josh. So that's the only thing that I know is that on the tape, I'm Jeff, and he's Josh. Well, let's take a listen to Josh and Jeff on a Doom journey. A Lost in Rewound exclusive. Doom. Once, there was a peaceful village. Very peaceful until a hideous, an evil troll came and tried to conquer the land. His name was Claus Vane. And he was a very mean troll. Two, uh, two men, two workers that were 
I'm trying to make shoes. Saw a, a deep purple cloud, and they were wonder and they were wondering what it was. In in the cloud, they saw a deep rock that had a very very mean grin on it. Hey, Jeff, don't you see that cloud? Yeah, I wonder what it is. It, it, there's a rock behind the cloud. Yeah. It has an evil grin on it, too. It's very ugly. We better start making that, we better start, instead of doing shoes, start making ropes and everything, and see if we can find out what's behind that cloud. Yeah, that'll be good. I'll be the captain. Sir, I'll be the manager. Okay. A few years later, Jeff and the captain made all their stuff and they went for their journey. The captain's name was Josh, Josh, Josh Darth. They went, they went out, and they they got under the cloud. Suddenly, a big strider lightning came, and they it almost hit Josh. Oh, um, Josh, it didn't hit you. It still hurt it. It was very next to me. But because the stones went flying on me into my face. Jeez, there must be something very ugly up there. Yeah, I think so, too. Let's get on our journey and pass that evil cloud. Yeah, let's do that. They passed the cloud and went into a deep, deep forest. They went far into the forest, and then they saw some dying trees and red eyes inside a big, deep forest. Whoa, Jeff, look at that! Whoa, Jeff, look at that! Ew, all the trees are dying. Oh my god, that is so ugly, I could scream like this. Uh, yeah, oh god, look at the red eyes in there. I like we cooped up some axes. Come on, take him out. Let's kick some butt. They don't have butts. We can just kick some tree. <laughs> yeah. Well... Suddenly, suddenly, there was a big howl that they never saw before. Ooh. Holy moly, Josh! Did you hear that? Yeah, I think so. It's very scary. I'm going to hide under the covers of the blankets that we, that we 
brain. <sighs> yeah, good idea. You better. You better poke holes in them too. It's a wolf. Ah! That that is quite a journey you guys went on. It's quite a doom journey. Yeah, there's uh, it's it's space. There's a wolf. It's just right. I mean, there's a lot going on. So there. I guess I'm Josh. I, I, we can tell now yes. because it, whoever's the deeper voice <laughs> just has to be me. That's yeah. the only way to know. Yo, your voice was deep for six years old. For six old. years old. I was Holy, even thinking it. You weren't lying. The Brooklyn was strong <laughs> in you. Yeah, it's got to be treats back there. They don't have butts. Um, <laughs> I could definitely tell from that clip that I was not the creative one, that my buddy was the mastermind. Yeah. You can tell. So he wrote the script and you just went along with it? I feel like I don't know that maybe I wrote more later, but at this point, it seems like I can even hear in his voice him getting mad at me like making bad script choices. <laughs> like he's like even the point where I'm like I'm <laughs> hide under the covers or whatever. He's like, yeah, you do that. <laughs> so would you go over to his house or this was at his house? This yeah. was at his house. Um, we, so we live next door to each other. Yeah, actually. on 10th Street on in 10th Street. Park Slope, Brooklyn. Exactly. We used to hang out at his place more. He had like a whole basement that was the kids' the kids' area. So his brother and him, uh, yeah, they both lived in the basement when we were little kids. And it was a big area. And then he had more. He had a lot more video games and stuff like that. So we were usually hanging out at his place. And I remember like us holed up in his like little tiny room. We had to pass the little mic back and forth. So right. there'd always be this little like break of us and it had the little spirally yellow cord and stuff. When we got a little bit older, he got into Dungeons and Dragons and he would be the dungeon master who mm-hmm. is the guy who creates the story. Right. I never did that. And I always thought, you know, I would really need to do a lot of preparation and now I feel like I'd have the I could do it, but yeah, you know, you really need to be able to immerse people in a world. Dungeons and Dragons is just it's just talking. I give way. it up to Dungeons and Dragons uh, players from the younger years, and especially Dungeon Masters. I could never get into it. It was hard for me to get into it, and not because I didn't like it, but because there was such a level of thought that my own pea brain back then could not envision. I was very creative. Like, don't get me wrong, but there was just I think there was a whole other level of imagination that clearly. By not reading any of the J.R.R. Tolkien, by not reading uh, any uh, fantasy novels of any kind, really, I just did not have that same panache for the fantasy canon. And so, therefore, being a dungeon master meant that you were you were like an expert. Yeah. I always wondered what was behind. I've never read one of those books, so I've always been curious what's behind that book. Like what? <laughs> like what? Like what's inside there? And how are you getting these ideas? And yeah. it blows my mind. It's still I, this day. I, I, I remain spellbound by what might be there. I only played myself like a handful of times. I wasn't as into it the same way. Um, I did enjoy it, and there were certain instances where it was fun. And usually, when my that my friend would be do it, like hosting it, because he had a really active and creative imagination. But that was what was cool is that you you know anything that you wanted could sort of just become part of the story in essence the same way like when you're, when you're six years old and you're writing a free form story audio like an audio drama that's the whole idea is once you say something it's real <laughs> once yeah once it's like oh and then i we had all these blankets and we had axes and we had rope <laughs> i'm the captain for some reason <laughs> Did you have at least access enough through parents' permission to, like, get stuff to make sound effects, I imagine? I, I don't know. I, I think we were just doing all 
vocal ones. You did to, all vocal. To the point where, and I have to find this. <laughs> I have it somewhere in high school, I think. We did these covers of songs, but we would do them all vocal, mm-hmm. meaning that acapella acapella but like someone would lay down the acapella guitar track someone would lay down the acapella drum track and we would like lay these tracks out and actually try to like balance them and make them sound like a cover and they were possibly the worst thing ever and the the best thing about it was that it was called we made a fake band name for it and it was called Coral Sex (laughs) good god (laughs) I just remembered that. Coral sex. <laughs> okay. It's a punny name. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. This right? is even more pertinent recently. I know that we did a cover of um, Ziggy Stardust. That was one of the songs I know we did. I want to hear it. So rest in peace, David Bowie. I, yeah, rest but, in peace. Uh, floating around David Bowie's spirit. And out in the ether, you can hear this really terrible song we did. <laughs> let's, in the meantime, let's hear a little bit more of this glorious, glorious six-year-old journey. The wolf jumped on Jeff, and he was forcing it off. But Josh, he had the blankets over him, and he couldn't see him. Suddenly, he heard a big, ugh, and and Josh threw the blankets off him. The wolf was coming close to him. He took a swung on it and put a big cut on the wolf's front leg. Hey, I'm not scared of that, you stinking wolf. And the wolf ran after Josh. Josh wasn't afraid. He took his axe off and took another swipe on his front leg. Then, Josh had to flee. He ran through the forest, leaving Jeff lying on the floor hurt very badly. The wolf chased after him very fast. Finally, he went behind a log. The wolf kept on on running and tripped over the log and hurt his back leg. The wolf could not run it any longer. Gee, that wolf kind of got me. I wonder where Jeff is. I better go find him. A few minutes later, oh, Josh, he bit my shoulder. Unfortunately, uh, that is all that we're able to ascertain from the most audible of that tape because after that point, everything just gets super silent, which leads me to believe two things of which you could back me up on this. If I know anything to do about the recording business, that if the sound is off, it's clearly you're not facing the mic, or the tape may have caught itself and actually just got inaudible over time. 20 plus years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, uh, but we, did get, get, we did get something out of it. Maybe we'll, we'll investigate further and see if we can, if we can, you know, get anything else maybe later on. Who knows? There's something that's really fascinating about writing a script as you go along. It's sort of 
as you're traveling, you're just uh, continuing to build blocks that you have in front of you in order to make sure that you don't fall off the ledge. Like in a video and game. And it falls away behind you. Exactly. No, I know what you mean. I know That's you mean. so, it's like you're constantly keeping the, uh, the, the script fresh so that you are not, like me, in most cases, falling down that chasm of despair because there's nothing left to write yeah. or know or to say. Well, again, it just goes to show that I feel my friend was a lot more creative than I was. Cause I, was like, I, was, I was basically, he was just prompting <laughs> the whole time. But I'm just the voice, man. That's it. You're just the voice. Just come in, read this copy, get to it, dude. Yeah. We could go on and put that last clip. Oh, oh, I, I, I know. Listener, not only do we have the clips from six-year-old Jimmy, but we also have clips of a college-age Jimmy. Yeah, so it was in my audio – no, it was actually in a, a media production class. It was intro to media production, and that's freshman year. So I was 18 at the time. Yeah, I just turned 18. And the idea was that all parts of media are really important and that you know 50% of film is audio. So you need to make something where the audio – speaks much more volumes than the picture does. So the picture shouldn't really be important. It's just kind of there as a placeholder. So the idea was to do an audio recording and use uh, static images as placeholders. So they had to make sense of what your audio was, but they were not what was important. What was important was the audio. And I was actually one of the only people in the class that decided to do, like, a dialogue and actually a scene. Everyone else did soundscapes, and, you know, all sorts of, like, really peculiar things. And I just really wanted to go and do a narrative. I actually did write this out beforehand. This was not completely off the dome. Like, I remember actually scripting it. You put work into it. To the smallest degree. I, I did. And I remember uh, getting a decent grade on it. They played it in class, and kids thought it was really goofy. The teacher didn't like it as much as I thought the teacher would like it. My audio recordings of my voice were not expert. So in that respect, the teacher didn't really care that I was doing accents. She, you know, he, I think, was it a guy? I can't even remember. But the, that person, that professor, just wanted quality audio, which it's decent. Well, let's take a listen to this, of which I can safely say will be well worth the minute and a half <laughs> that it is, right? Oh, yes. It's, it's, it's really compact, but th- there's a lot of magic in that minute and a half. Let's kick it. Your 
There be no greater collection of villains and rogues than the ones before your eyes. We've got hornswogglers, thieves, murderers, and whores. All for the right amount of coins. Perhaps the only way to show you be a song. With a band of vicious pirates for sailing out to sea. When you hear a gentle singing, you'll be sure to turn and flee. Oh, this is just ridiculous. The music and the last, just that last portion where the song begins is from a LucasArts video game for a computer that was a point-and-click adventure where you played a pirate. And it's, Dude, what was that game? It's called uh, The Curse of Monkey Island. It's one what? of the best I've heard games. of that. Yeah, it's so yeah. good. And there's literally a point where you meet these singing pirates and you have to, like, sing with them. And if you get the song wrong, like, you lose the portion That's of the game. That's the song. And there's another part where you basically – you'll try to conquer the high seas at one point and you're um, sword fighting with people. But really the sword fighting is sword fight insulting. So you have to, like, insult them the correct way. So they'll insult you and you have to like, come scally back. Lag or something. You have to say like the right – Yeah, like he'll insult – Give him the right He'll name. insult your mother or something and then you have to come back at him and insult his mother in like a better way. But there's like a really specific way to do it. And it's, it, the game was so nuanced. It was, it's really, really quite what, amazing. What year did that come out? The game, I want to say, is was from the mid-90s, like 95 or something. It's great. Yeah, it's really great. definitely. That was a far-out project. You went to Emerson, right? Yeah. So what was the class that this was again? So this was Intro to Media Production, which was a class that everyone in my department had to take. Man, if I had been in a television radio, which is, for the record, what I did apply for, didn't get in, GPA wasn't good <laughs> enough, I would have loved to have done something like that. Man, that was, that was far out. Plus the fact that... I don't think I've ever heard you do your captain voice. Well, that wasn't really a captain. It was my uh, yes. Yeah, so if you so guys, if you don't know, that was all you. All me. That was all it you. Was all me. Except me. for the song. That Except was for the song. All you on the voice. It was me talking to myself. You've done the 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 basic stereotypical pirate voice. Yeah. So I did the stereotypical pirate voice, which was like. And clearly, we know where the all the pirate voice comes from. It you, you've never stopped doing. it. <laughs> <laughs> you always ever. find a way <laughs> to do pirate voices on the show. Arr, you know, you, this voice is just, it's classic. But that clearly goes much earlier. Yeah, so that I've been doing forever, that pirate voice probably. It's funny because even listening to the clip now, I ham it up so big. And I think that I really wanted to get myself doing like a good performance of the pirate voice. But listening to it now, it was so, as the kids say, it was extra. It was extra, man. Yeah. <laughs> I would tone it down a bit, but... But you were saying, though. Then, then the other voice was supposed to kind of be in the vein of, like, Pirates of the Caribbean, how, you know, the British were out sailing and they were hunting pirates and stuff like that. I wanted to have a guy who came from that world, but he kind of wanted into the pirate world. So you were trying to emulate an Orlando Bloom. Yeah, sort of, exactly. He has to come into the dregs to get to this treasure, you know, which is the classic pirate story. You have to come in out, search out the old pirate, and, uh -huh. then he show, and then he tells you the story, and then you get the map or whatever, and you go off. Can you do it again? The the voice of the, yeah. of, of the dandy? Yes. Of course I can do that dandy voice. 
So if you're here and you're in the studio and you want to do the dandy voice, you come all the way down the road and you... I'm looking for, the, you know, a really bright and shining crew because I need to bring back this treasure for all my people back in Newcastle. Or something like that. What happened, Dandy? Where'd you go? Um, that's that... I've heard... See, that's so weird, though, is because there's something about the way that you do it now that I've heard that voice, but I, the way you did it... I did it, it back then, yeah. It was different. You know what I think it was is that I tried to really change the tone of my voice to make it – to distinguish it that it wasn't – that it, people maybe wouldn't think it was me doing it the same way. So like, you're saying that you take, can't do I that took, now. I took the bass out. Um, oh, I see. Yeah, my voice is way bassier Radio now. Radio tricks. Yeah, my voice is way bassier now and I do inject bass into a lot of stuff that I do now uh, just because I know it sounds cool. But back then, I was really – I was that was a no bass voice. So I'm just, let me see if I can do it with no bass now. Let me try. If what you spout is true, old man, we could be rich by the morrow. Amazing! First, I need a pirated crew. But they must be strong and brave. For that's, this journey is a treacherous one. This makes me so happy. This is, this is <laughs> bravo. bravo. Thank you, thank you. I love to learn from my peers about how to create better voices. I say it once, I'll say it again. It is wonderful to hear it as an adult because it just shows that I'm clearly never too old to hear voices that are just fantastic and inspirational. Anything is better than the crude voices that I had when I was growing up and having the Danziger's own characters. Uh, my, my version of Ricardo Ramon, for example. Yes, if we were talking about wrestling before. Well, let me tell you my Ricardo Ramon. It is a knock-off of a knock-off, so it is a knock-off squared. <laughs> it's exactly when a you do a square an, knock-off. When you do an impression of an impression, there's always there's yeah exactly there's always that 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 level of like it's, it's Scott Hall doing Scarface, and then me doing Scott Hall doing Scarface as a twelve-year-old. <laughs> Someone asked me in college to do an impression um, that I didn't think I could do, and they just the guy kept hounding me about it. You got to do a Pacino, do a Pacino voice. I really want it. Just come on, do Pacino. And I'm like, I don't, I don't have a Pacino. And he's like, No, you could do a Pacino. You could do it. I know it. You're from, you're from New York. Do a Pacino. <laughs> and I'm telling you, man, like every time I'd see this guy, he he hounded me about it so much. And he was a really nice guy. I still remember this guy, uh, Walker, huge guy. Guy's like six foot four. I said, you know what? I'll do it, but I'm gonna do it right. So I actually built a whole storyline for this impression of like a film that Dale Pacino never did to do this impression. And, I, and I'm actually going to bust this out now because I did it the other night. This is why I remembered it. Rock it out, homie. So I said, wouldn't it be great if Al Pacino was in a film where he's in prison? I feel like that's one of the few films I don't, I don't really remember like an, an Al Pacino prison movie. You are more of a film buff than I'll ever be. And therefore, I trust your Knowledge. I mean, I like I do I like prison movies though. Anytime there's a movie where people are in circumstances that are so different than reality for for so many other people, and yeah. you can see people in this this desperate you know desperation of like having to get through. The idea was that Al Pacino would be in the showers, and he was a no nonsense guy in the prison. Since someone came to to sexually assault him in the, in the shower. Okay. So this is the impression. Get that dick away from my ass. <laughs> That's the whole impression. And it, my buddy loved it so much, he proceeded to call me Pacino for the rest of college. <laughs>
You're speechless. I know. I yeah. Know. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, it's hard because the sounds, just like with what you had when you were six with Zach, what was probably going on, aside from the voices, is probably what's most important. It's the inflections is one thing, but, like, the actions that are being done while you're doing the inflections if anybody could actually see what you were doing while you did that Pacino impression and the physical preparation, it would make so much more of an impression. How the fact that you could have made such a presentation with that. It's great because the actual effort that you put into creating that physicality. I mean, when you're that young, you're not really thinking about it. You're just sort of... Oh no, there's a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. I You're hear not you. thinking about anything other than just the script. I wanted to ask one more question before we wrap up, and that is um, when you are in that age of which you are still coming up and being amazed at the kind of entertainment that you're around, you haven't really had a lot of impressions yet. You are just there, just your talent. And then you go to college and you are writing your own stuff. Where along the lines were you most influenced with creating your own work versus that of just being there as the kid on the doom journey and then doing the project in college where in between did you find yourself really interested in creating your own projects that is a great question man you're, Save the best for last. You're good at this stuff. You cut to the core of me, Baxter. Nah. <laughs> I was like, wow. Because you know you're right. Um, and, I, and I was even just thinking about this. I, you know, you kind of really sparked something even that same way. I wasn't very creative when I was young. There was a time that I was, but that friend of mine, Zach, I feel like I kind of leached onto his creativity a lot. I learned a lot from him. And I've always been a person where I could, I could watch people and learn and, and just apply it immediately to my own life and try to get better at something that, that was important to me. As far as actually doing my own sort of creative projects, I feel like I really started to get into that in high school. I realized that I had talent, performance, and things like that. Even at that point, I felt like I'd been wasting my time by not doing anything with it. I was in, like, little nothings, you know, in, in elementary school. You know, little mini plays in class and things like that. But I remember always really being excited by performing. But I did doc that documentary which I've told you about. Uh, you guys, you can actually look up. I did a documentary in high school. Um, it actually plays on HBO in the middle of the night sometimes, which is really ridiculous. If you want to go look it up, it's called Multifaceted. It's about me having a problem with identity because I was doing too many characters. The program was called Real Works, R-E-E-L. Yeah, they're based in Brooklyn. They're based in Brooklyn. I was actually in the, the second class. They've been going now for over a decade. Yeah. And they're huge now. And when we started, we were like... I've been in their uh, facilities. I, really did, nice. I did a project for, with yeah. them, or at least I auditioned for a project. We used to be in, like, the Y. Like, yeah. It was just like a little room in the Y. Now they've got, like, this whole studio, and it's, it's really quite amazing what they do over there. But I did this documentary, yeah. So you can check that out if you guys want to find it online. Well, which we, well actually, we can throw up a link to it cool. as well. But it's one of those things where I feel like for any artist, uh, there'll be a time in your life when you feel like you need to be doing something. You feel as though there's that pull to put something out there for people to absorb, enjoy. Yeah. You know, for me, I've always liked comedy and stuff like that. I've always liked people laughing. For instance, that documentary that I did, I really enjoyed doing it. It had a good response, but I realized, and if you guys do end up watching it, it's really sad, and it makes people get sad. And afterwards, I thought, I don't want to do media that makes people sad, because I don't want to be sad. You know, sometimes it's nice to watch a sad movie, but 
it was real. It was real life. So I don't want people to like look at my life and go, ah, it's so sad. You well, know, you've come a long way, Jimmy. You are now here on Radio Free Brooklyn alongside a mess of other creative folks who have a ton of other original programs. And I'm happy for you to be here to join me on this sort of creative journey where we are more or less acting like grown-up children, but with at least the maturity of knowing where we came from. And now I have a little more insight knowing where you came from. Listener, if what you heard inspires you to look for your audio, then I'm glad we did our job. Be sure to find that tape and submit to us. Tell us that you have it at least. Yeah, it has to be out there because when you go back and you listen to these things, you're going to uncover a lot more than what's on the tape. Yep. You'll find something out about yourself that you forgot and that needs to be remembered. So you can email us at... Lostandrewound at gmail.com. We'll see you again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Right here at Radio Free Brooklyn. This is Lost and Rewound. My name is Alon. I'm Jimmy. See you later. Thank you.